the journey you're setting out on is just a fascinating one because you're stepping early into a deep underlying structural shift that is going to reshape the world around us in the global north in all kinds of incredible ways. Welcome to Longevity Gains, the show that reveals the near limitless opportunities for digital marketers and entrepreneurs in the longevity economy. We're talking about the people aged 50 and over who already account for more than half of consumer spending in the US and 83% of household wealth, which will only increase in the years to come. It's the $22 trillion opportunity you can't afford to ignore. Brian, it is good to be back on the mic with you. How you doing? I'm doing okay, and it is good to be back. We've taken a little bit of break from our uh, years and years of podcasting together in various <laughs> uh, ways, and uh, I'm excited for this one, as you know, and uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. I can't believe I just looked back, and I started Longevity Games in late April, and it's late August, and I I feel like I literally just started but wow. we've got a significant archive now of articles and whatnot with the newsletter and today we're adding the podcast so it's all good stuff other than that um i just moved my son into his dorm at college very nice my, congratulations my is empty it is <laughs> uh it is a sad thing you know, um, like, you know, it's going to be, but you don't know until it happens. And you, like, I used to always get up early and I would always go in and check on the kids. And then my daughter left a few years ago and I still would do this with my 18 year old son, just look in there make sure he's actually there. <laughs> and then I woke up this morning. I'm like, he's not here. It was, it was one of those things. So anyway, but at least but, he's uh, close enough. You can just show up on a Friday night with a six pack and be like, hey, ready to hang? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to encourage that behavior. <laughs> I just, you know, I just grew up enough myself to avoid that kind of behavior, you know? <laughs> uh, well, hey, speaking of longevity gains, I have to say, I mean, you and I have worked together for a while now. Um, gosh, more than a decade. And I've seen you excited before and jazzed up and into stuff. This is at the top of the list, I think, of times I've really seen you just into a topic. There's a there's that spark that you get, you know, when you're just really diving into something and exploring something and, you know, seeing the connection between things and just, you know, reading the newsletter and talking with you about it. You've uh you've got that and it's uh it's fun to watch. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm kind of a purpose-driven person, you know, I can spot something that'll make money pretty easily, but then I'll be like, I don't want to do that. And you know, I've been in kind of early on things uh, in the past, content marketing, WordPress, online education, those basically, you know, made us with Copyblogger and and the last company. And then when we started selling off the pieces of all that, I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. I certainly knew I didn't want to retire. I wanted to do something. And so you've been with me the last four years while we kind of figured this out. 
And uh, I think you always had faith. Even we, we did pretty well with the stuff we did, but I don't know that I was as excited as I am now. And it, it's kind of cool that you notice that. Yes. Well, and I have to say, it's kind of cool that you continue to uh, include me, even though I am a millennial. At the very beginning, I mean, born in 1981, but I do appreciate that you continue to allow me to hang out with you and with Trudy and with with this group, uh, despite well, not you being know, Jared, you just you just missed the cool cutoff. I mean, I really, I, really <laughs> I can't hold that against you, but it's important that this is an anti-ageism zone. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that the guy who coined that term, ageism. In way back in 1969, a guy named Robert Butler, and he specifically meant discrimination against older people. But the word literally means discrimination based on age, which goes in both directions. And that's actually something we'll touch on. You know, hopefully uh, we have more intergenerational harmony than uh, discord. Uh, that's a tall order, but I think it's it's probably one of the most important things that we accomplish with the aging population and, and everything that's going on. So you can rest assured that I will not discriminate and or make fun of you for being a millennial. For example, I will never refer to you as the token millennial or... <laughs> I think each week I should have an example of things I'm not going to say yes. about millennials, right? Uh, Ricky Gervais has a great uh, stand-up special where he says, here are some jokes I would never make. And then he proceeds to make the joke and it's awful, but, you know, he gets away with it. <laughs> anyway, right. no, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, any podcast endeavor, uh, Jared and Brian are the team. So I'm glad you were willing to uh, come on board once more. Absolutely. No, I'm excited about this. So let's, let's talk about longevity gains. Um, what's happening with it? Where's it going? What's, uh, what's the plan moving forward? Well, yeah, you're listening to uh, the, you know, one of the new additions to the, the whole uh, experience, and that will be this podcast. It's going to be a mix of great interviews, or first of which is today uh, that we'll be sharing with you. And then you and I will just pop in and do, uh, you know, some audio lessons, maybe uh, things that I could write about, but uh, are more better suited for uh, a conversation, um, bouncing ideas off of you and seeing what you think is always useful. So we'll be doing uh, a lot of that. We've also today released the first Longevity Gains ebook. Now, this is, uh, it's called Longevity Economy Fundamentals, and it's basically the foundational information you need to understand why we're so excited about uh, this vast opportunity and how far and expansive it actually is. Um, so if you have only subscribed to Longevity Gains in the last couple months or so, you missed the very initial articles that I wrote. And those were really the foundational things that kind of explain, you know, what we're looking at, how we got here, what we can do uh, to capitalize on things in a way that makes uh, marketers and entrepreneurs uh, a lot of money, but also, believe it or not, uh, makes the world a better place 
given the aging of the population that we have. So grab that uh, PDF ebook if you haven't uh, yet. I did. We're sending it out with the email with this podcast because if you subscribe recently and you feel a little lost and you didn't go back in the archives, this will really kind of get you up to speed. Now, this is really just the first of what I'm calling power guides, which, yes, we've got a newsletter and a podcast, and we're going to be creating content continually, but uh, I'm going to organize this in very useful ways for reference so that when you want to go back and and look at how to do a specific thing or uh, understand a specific strategy, then it'll all be organized for you. And this is something I did going all the way back to the beginning of Copyblogger, uh, you know, newsletters like blogs are not very good at organizing information because they're in chronological order. So back at the beginning of Copyblogger, I organized, you know, posts on landing pages that had to do with a specific topic like copywriting, email marketing, all of that. That worked out really well. And I'm going to do that again. Um, but we've got the first one out, which is kind of our lead magnet, if you will, that basically when people subscribe to Longevity Gains, then they will understand where we're coming from, from a foundational level. You mentioned the Power Guides. The Power Guides are a premium subscriber benefit, right? That's true. Aside from the first one, and that's a good segue into the fact that we are introducing uh, Substack's premium level uh, access and uh, that is also new, and you can check it out. Uh, I mentioned it again in the email that delivered this episode to you. But yeah, we're going to be doing course-level lessons, and that's why I've spent so much time, four months literally, setting the stage for things people need to know so we can actually get into this even deeper level uh, of how to do effective marketing to older people because there's not a lot of examples to go by because older people are basically ignored. <laughs> um, and uh, there are a lot of misconceptions, some of which we've covered. Uh, but the key here is that uh, we have to be able to treat older people in a way that makes sense, just like we do with any other people. And one big demographic lump or group or bucket uh, makes absolutely no sense. And uh, that's what we're really going to try to guide you with, with the premium level uh, subscriptions. So, you know, one thing we're going to go into is is something we've touched on a little bit, the empower, empowerment marketing framework. You know, how do you know what to say and how to say it? Well, you do that by deeply understanding your audience and, uh, you know, this is how you create positive change for older people uh, as they become more active consumers with these demographic shifts that we're facing. I'm also introducing the attitude to action persuasion method. Uh, I think, you know, as well as anyone, Jared, I always avoided doing a, you know, traditional copywriting or content marketing course. Uh, I've talked a lot about strategy and stuff like that because I think that's the missing element and that there are plenty of books on copywriting and content marketing, blah, blah, blah. But I've come to realize that I actually do have a very unique 
uh, way that I create messages, content to copy. Uh, they're not separate things. They're two ends of a spectrum, right? It's all about persuasion. So I use the term persuasion instead of content or copy. So this is basically about creating positive attitudes toward you, which is incredibly important. And then also, though, the issues the audience needs to embrace, you know, to make you the only logical choice to do business with. And that's really what we're aiming for with our marketing and audience building. And then finally, we're going to go all full circle back to 2007 when I launched Teaching Sales uh, and had to convince bloggers that online education was going to be a big deal, right? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's about to get even bigger, specifically uh, what's uh, historically known as lifelong learning. We'll flip that around to long life learning. As our lifespans and health spans expand, uh, the need for training, retraining, learning, unlearning uh, for later stages of life is going to be a huge market, only one that we'll explore here at Longevity Games, but it's ideal for content creators, obviously. That was the reason why our first product was um, about online education, because writers and content creators have the means of production. And if you understand uh, the older people market, then uh, you are going to be in a great position to uh, create products in that realm. So that's just a brief preview of the premium subscription. Very nice. That all sounds great. Well, let's get on with the business of today, which is our first podcast interview. Uh, you interviewed David Matten. Tell us why David was your choice to kick off this new podcast. Yeah, David's an incredibly smart guy. He's a futurist. Um, and uh, in that realm, there are shysters, and then there are people you can pay attention to, in my opinion. And David is one of those. He used to work for an organization called Trend Watching that I was a paid subscriber to. And then he left and started doing a free newsletter. And as I've said to him, I, I honestly find his free newsletter uh, more valuable than the stuff I used to pay for. So definitely check out his newsletter. But here we're talking specifically about what he calls the most consequential megatrend that we're facing and that's a bold statement and he backs it up so let's uh let's switch over to my conversation with david and we'll take it from there and jared you and i will be back next week with more looking forward to it David, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is a big honor for me. I'm a big fan of your work for many years. And I thought it was appropriate to have someone in the precarious profession of futurism to come on and talk about these issues, uh, which you've written about in the past. So to get things started, though, why don't you go ahead and tell people who you are, what you do and how you got here? Hi there, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. It's a huge thrill to be on. Um, I write a newsletter called New World, Same Humans, all about trends, technology, and our shared future. And that newsletter goes to around 25,000 readers these days. And really what I'm trying to do with that newsletter is build big picture frameworks and models and an understanding 
of the fundamental forces reshaping our shared future, where we are now and where we're all going. My deeper background, I come from a kind of consumer insight background, um, trying to understand emerging consumer behaviors and mindsets and how cultural shifts and technological shifts shape those behaviors and mindsets. With the newsletter, with New World Same Humans, I've really broadened my view beyond just seeking to understand human beings as consumers. I suppose you'd say, and I, I want to build big picture understanding of human beings as human beings and the big forces reshaping our shared lives and our future. Um, so I write the newsletter and I spend some of my time speaking to leaders inside large organizations about our shared future, the big trends reshaping it, what they mean for the organization and how they should respond. Excellent. And uh, I always wanted to compliment you on the title of the newsletter, New World, Same Humans, because it is true. Human nature doesn't change. One of my favorite sayings is technology doesn't uh, change human nature. It amplifies it. And uh, I think you can broaden that to the larger context of cultural and technological change. We stay the same, but we have to adapt within it. And that, I think, is a valuable lesson in itself. But one reason that I wanted you to be our very first guest on the uh, Longevity Gains podcast is a statement you made a little bit while back, uh, where you basically said that the aging population uh, – let, let me go ahead and quote you exactly. It's an unprecedented demographic change. And because it will shape our response to everything else, I've come to believe that it is the most consequential megatrend reshaping the decades ahead. Now, that's a big statement, and there's a lot to unpack there. So why don't we start there? What, what uh, leads you to feel that this is, in fact, the most consequential megatrend? Yeah, it is a mighty big statement. And like I say, I mean, I'm constantly searching for big picture frameworks, big picture understanding of where we are now, of this kind of socio-technological moment, I suppose you'd say, without being too grandiose about it, where we are now on those terms and where we're heading. And then you start to think about some of the big forces underlying the shape of our societies, the nature of our societies and where they're heading. Um, obviously, technological change, you know, and we can all feel that now with this AI moment is a is a huge driver there. Perhaps one of the primary, it was certainly one of perhaps the primary driver um, reshaping our shared future. Then there's another huge driver, and that is fundamentally, you know, how many of us are there? And what is the shape of that demographically? How How many of us are there? How old are we? That is just a profound, deep underlying driver of the nature of our societies, the nature of our lives collectively and individually, and where we're heading. And it and it shapes so much of our response to technological change, economic change, climate change, uh, and so on. So, yeah, that that's where I come come at that from. You know, I'm looking for the for the big, big underlying forces reshaping our shared future and demographic change has always been one of those. Absolutely. And you can't really resist demographic change. It's happening. And we've known this was coming for a while, which is surprising to me that it's really 
starting to get, I think, the the attention that perhaps it deserves only recently. And often, you know, the the articles about it range from the hysterical to <laughs> to uh, you know otherwise. They they never seem to see the bigger picture, and of course, that's what we're trying to grasp here. So, when people think about longevity, what comes to mind uh, oftentimes is very old or elderly people. Uh, the big movement in say age tech is really about caring for the very uh, old pe- uh, older people because of uh, the extension in uh, overall longevity. But what's interesting to me and, and something that you've uh, touched on is what does this mean for what used to be middle age and is now something that's more expansive? Because media and advertising tends to ignore you once you're out of the you know, age 49 demographic, you just disappear, right? And yet, if you look at the numbers, the people over 50, especially when you account for the baby boomers, have all the money. (laughs) Um, It's it's a very (laughs) odd thing. But the really interesting thing to me about middle age, which you've touched on, is it used to be like 40 to 60 was middle age. And at the time when Social Security was promulgated, most people didn't even make it to 65. The government was playing it fairly safe. Now, if you live to 65, which mo- you know more and more people do, you're going to live to 85, maybe more. Um, so this means middle age is something like 50 to 75 now. What are the implications of that? Yeah, I think that is the the fundamental shift, and that's what people need to understand. I mean, we're talking about the elongation of lifespan. But crucially, inside that, we're talking about the elongation of of wellness span, of health span. Um, And that means middle age really is what shifts and and the way we conceptualize it shifts. As you say, you know, it it just lasts much longer than it did before and goes into the later years in a way that it that it didn't before. And look, like the, the fundamental life shape that we have in the global north which is something like, you know, go and get educated, leave college at 18 or 21, um, head into the world of work, work hard, kind of build value around yourself, retire in your early 60s, um, enjoy a retirement, and then, you know, it's time to call it a day. That life shape um, was based around, as you just said, an idea that people would live to, you know, their mid-60s, perhaps their, their very early 70s, that fundamentally just isn't true anymore. I mean, you have people now certainly aspiring to live into, you know, their 90s. That that's almost as much adult life, post-education life, um, all over again. And that just means the ability to, the need to, and expectations, I think, that we will fundamentally reshape the the big life map that we lay out in front of um in front of ourselves. Um, some examples. I mean, it doesn't really make sense anymore that among your peak working years are expected to be, for example, your sort of mid 30s, perhaps early 40s, when many people are right in the middle of the most intense years of, of childcare. Um, there is an opportunity now and perhaps a need 
to to reshape that somewhat so that people can take something of a career uh, kind of downsizing, a career break or or pause in those years, uh, concentrate on childcare, and then come kind of roaring back in their early 40s, mid 40s. Once upon a time, that would have seemed un- unthinkable because people would have felt as though by their mid 40s, you know, the, the game is is kind of half done. It's almost done. I need to be somewhere. That that calculus has changed fundamentally now. Um, the idea that you can educate yourself for a few years in your late teens, in a way, and early twenties, that prepares you for a lifetime in the economy again is 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 clearly now just absurd. The length of your life, coupled with the pace of technological change, means that that just doesn't work anymore. We're going to need to devise models of lifelong learning. Um, and you can see all these, you can see all these movements, uh, you know, these, these steps towards that kind of change emerging. And they are emerging because of this deep underlying demographic factor that is longer lives, more older people, an extension of middle age. Yeah, absolutely. The the existing concept of three stages of life, which is learn, earn, and retire, will seem to give way to a multi-stage conception of, of life. You know, you talk about it does make sense that instead of this intense career track, that maybe you take some time, you know, both parents to raise children instead of the dynamic we have now. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, people in their early 60s taking midlife sabbaticals instead of retiring because that's not really feasible to live 30 or 40 years <laughs> off of the meager retirement savings that at least in the United States most people um right. are dealing with. And then of course you've got the unretirement trend. These are baby boomers who have ostensibly plenty of money, uh, but they're just bored. They have no meaning or purpose once they've left work. And and so they're coming back into the workplace. So yeah, the whole concept of how do we define stages of life and how do we behave seems like it's something worth paying attention to. Um, One thing I do want to... Yeah, you you touched on uh, big issues being impacted by an aging population. In other words, historically, people become more conservative when they're older or may have outdated views, what have you. And that conflicts with younger people. And you mentioned climate change. And of course, there's income inequality and all of these things that I guess could be encapsulated when you hear a Gen Z kid say, okay, boomer, right? They're, I don't know that they're necessarily being ageist, but I think that they're saying, you don't understand what we're facing right now. And one of the keys, I think, to make this work at a societal level is going to have to be intergenerational harmony. Like older people are going to work longer. They're going to have to work with young people. My theory is that that you know, from an economic standpoint, treating older people as viable consumers actually helps with that because uh, employers will keep them uh, more engaged longer. All of these things come together. But it's a challenging problem. Um, Any insight on that? 
Well, yeah, I think that um, OK Boomer is a is a tiny fragment, a tiny signal of the the new forms of generational tension that you get when you have this elongation of of lifespan and health span, and you just have far more older people, far more middle aged and older people inside society. I mean, obviously, generational tension is is not new. You know, you can look back to the you know the Cultural Revolution of the nineteen sixties. There's always been generational tension, but it's interest. I think it's becoming profoundly, acutely, you might say, uh, more. It's becoming more acute because the balance is tipping, and you just have a far greater number of middle-aged and older people. And fundamentally, what they are doing is hoarding. Not you know, not nece- not necessarily intentionally or with bad intentions, but they are hoarding wealth and resources um, and attention and cultural impact. Um, Death is the great leveler and the great dynamic sort of refresher um, mover of society. And when you when you greatly postpone death for, you know, tens and tens, hundreds of millions of people inside your society, you just change, you change that calculus, you change the way it's operating. And you have, you know, we all know this, you have middle aged and older people now, in far greater numbers than before, sitting on huge amounts of capital, sitting on huge amounts of housing wealth. um, And that causes new kinds of social, new kinds of economic tension uh, that we're going to have to resolve. We're going to have to resolve that. And our politics is going to have to become, to a greater extent, about the resolution of that kind of generational tension, uh, certainly. You know, I mean, we we're going to need new kinds of uh, accommodations and resolutions when it comes to what do we do about all these older people sitting on huge asset wealth um, and not kind of moving over in the way they used to. It 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 causes social tensions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, look at the look at the U.S. election you have coming up. It's going to be between. It looks like it's going to be between. You know, someone in there, a, a, pre, a sitting president in his what early eighties, right, and a and someone in his late seventies. I mean, the U.S. is becoming, or is perhaps pretty securely an oligarchy. It also looks to be something of a a, a gerontocracy. You know, it's it, it's ruled by extremely old people, um, and this is partly a function of the of the kind of demographic change we're talking about. Uh, it becomes very hard for younger people. And in the game of politics, we're talking about, when we talk about young people, we're talking about middle-aged people, comes very hard for them to ascend the ladder and get to the the place of not just material value, but cultural impact and reputational value and position that they once would have and, and would expect by now becomes hard for that to happen when you have very vigorous, vibrant, you know, very well um, 70 year olds and 80 year olds, 85 year olds who don't want to move aside, like very understandably, they, they're not ready to move aside yet. But then you get something of a, a, a of a calcifying effect and you get a lot of discontent underneath that. And you can see that in, you know, housing wealth and the economy, but you can see it in cultural, socio-cultural games like politics too. I mean, look, you can even see it in, for example, you can see it in tennis. Look at the famous tennis players um, Djokovic, you know, Federer, Nadal. These are guys who have, in fact, it's a, that's a very interesting case study for what I'm talking about. They have essentially hogged 
the position of the world's most famous tennis players for what is now an insane, historically, an insane amount of time. Like the world's most famous tennis player, Federer, is he's a year younger than me. He's 42. And okay, maybe in the last year or two, you finally see that star waning, like he's fallen off and it's not coming back now, that's for sure. But that is just a crazy length of time where the top guy has not had to move over. And that's a result of the elongation of wellness span inside. I mean, and we're talking like in a very uh, heightened way here, but inside a professional sport, you never got that. Even when we were kids, right, that was just absurdly old for a for a professional tennis player. Um you're seeing that tennis effect, maybe let's call it the Federer effect, <laughs> um, across society in all kinds of ways. And that causes tension because it means a lack of opportunity and value for people, for younger people. And they start to resent that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. You know, Tom, the Tom Brady effect it would be another way to put it. Right. You know, it's just like you you want him to kind of go away if if you're not a fan of Tom Brady, but on the other hand, you're you're really impressed uh, at his longevity. The irony here, I think, is that you touched on you know the the baby boomers and the creation of youth culture, which which happened in response to that great wave of births post World War II, and that's where the whole uh, don't trust anyone over 30 and I hope I die before I get old kind of stuff. Now the baby boomers are the older people and they're like, wait a minute, why are you ignoring me? Well, it's because we celebrate, well, not we, we weren't around, but at the time marketers and media celebrated youth and you, and now you don't like the fact that you're not uh, people aren't paying attention to you. And, and really, that's a catalyst because the baby boomers, if anything, will not be ignored. <laughs> no, because there's just too many of them. And there's, you know, there's really interesting thinking and research on the nature of the 60s cultural revolution and kind of how and why it played out. And part of the reason it played out is just beca is because of the weight of numbers. And this, again, is a really interesting insight into the into the power the the systemic power of demographics and demographic change there were just a whole whole ton of young people in the 60s of people in their you know late teens 20s late 20s early 30s this massive generation and they imposed socio-cultural change on everyone else um what you have to ask as we look into the future is how is that dynamic going to play out? Because we're going to have far more middle-aged and older people than we are going to have young people. So the, does the cultural weight and the ability to sort of shape shape society and shape the culture, does the center of gravity of that move to older people in a way we're unaccustomed to? We're accustomed to the idea of young people as the sort of shapers and the innovators of culture. But perhaps that was just one particular 20th century moment with its own idiosyncrasies that are pretty context-specific, largely because of this extremely big baby boomer generation that is not going to be the way it works, you know, across the next five decades. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. But but that again will cause intergenerational tension. But there are there are huge challenges there to find new accommodations between the generations. And exactly as you say, I mean, there are clearly huge any marketer who's walking around thinking that they can ignore like middle-aged and older people now is just not awake or doing simple maths. I mean, there's, there's going to be huge numbers of those people. There are huge market opportunities in serving those generations, clearly. Yeah, interesting insight. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Something else you write uh, quite eloquently about and often is the future of work. And, you know, ever since Dan Pink's free agent nation almost you know, more than two decades ago, we've been waiting for traditional employment structures to dissipate or, or you know, change considerably. And I think they have. But it was interesting that I think the pandemic uh, did more catalyst for actual change than any of the, the early prognostications really had. Um, now you factor in people living longer. Um, the data on Gen X's retirement savings is not positive. You know, a, a lot of people in my generation just say, well, I'm not going to be able to retire. I'm going to keep working. But more dangerous, perhaps, is a person who thinks they have enough money to retire in a conventional sense and outlives their money, which if you uh, look at surveys uh, for Gen X, their number one fear is outliving their money. Uh, what are your thoughts on the impact between where work is going and how we factor in the need of older people or, or as we saw with the unretirement thing, the desire to keep working past 65, 67, whatever the case may be? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, again, there are, I tried to look at the big structural changes and, and the structural forces in play. Um and there are there are big structural forces in play that are changing our relationship with work and the the way we think about work. One of those is technology and automation. Many many jobs um, are going to be changed, or some of them are going to be erased by automation. We're we're becoming increasingly able to build an economy that is productive without the input of human labor that is sort of productive on a baseline level. I mean, there's still all kinds of things that only people can do, um, but productive on a baseline level without the inputs of human labor that were once required. Um, and that means it's going to become harder for people to find places in the economy. Um, but coupled with that, technology is allowing people to find means of self-expression and ways of creating value and ways of finding customers um, all of their own, entirely new ways of doing that. And I'm thinking here essentially about the internet. You know, the internet is this incredible machine for allowing people to, to, to build something, to put it out there, to find a market, to find customers, and to, to make a living doing that. I mean, that's partly what I do, partly what you do with with newsletters, right? We're an example of this phenomenon. And I think you're going to see more and more people heading 
heading that way you know the uh, this idea that i can just sort of head into the world of work and have a succession of steady jobs um i mean back in the day it was like one steady job you know i join the corporation i'll be a company man and i'll retire at the end of that with a gold plated pension it would be wonderful you know though that is clearly that world has clearly is clearly long gone and i think we're seeing still considerable shift and disruption even in a world where you believe you can sort of head out of college have a succession of good in inverted commas jobs and then retire you're going to see a much greater plurality of journeys through the economy and i think you're going to see you know just structurally more kind of independent workers more sort of freelance workers building their own little sort of micro businesses around themselves and offering value to sort of the world out there to people out there um in new ways that they determine themselves um and planning to continue to do that long past the traditional retirement age you know people will then have control of their own economic destiny and and they'll be able to keep doing the thing they're doing you know into their 70s mid 70s 80s why not if you're still if you're still you know reasonably vibrant and healthy and cognitively well you'll be able to keep doing what you're doing um so yeah i think we're going to see interest very very you know interesting shifts in that direction all of these shifts happen very slowly so it's a bit like being the frog in the water that's sort of slowly heating up it's very hard to see these changes demographically driven changes happening in real time because it's a it's a it's a slow moving tide but if you look back across the last few decades and then you try to make inferences across the next few decades you can see the phenomena i'm talking about you know you can see the emergence of what's been called the creator economy online and millions of people using the internet as a platform for their own economic existence um and yeah there's a reason why you know a million and one children want to be youtubers these days instead of podcasters i mean sorry instead of pop stars not podcasters <laughs> pop stars um because we've shifted our economy towards attention um robots machines can sort of fulfill our material needs uh, and that's going to be ever more true in the coming decades what is left when robots and machines do materially most of what we need to get done what's left essentially is each other is the attention of one another at the end of that very long journey is essentially an economy that's that is entirely automated and all it's left for human beings to do is to care for one another and to entertain one another to do the things essentially that only other people can do for you to be with you as a human being um a machine can't do that a machine can't be a person for you that's what's left at the end of this long journey of automation and this long journey of technique that we're on inside modernity so more and more of the economy i think will shift towards that towards entertainment and towards care um, and the creator economy and the youtuber economy and all these things we talk about at the moment they're just dimensions of that growing journey that we're on yeah it's fascinating we could talk the entire time about this in fact i may have to invite you back to talk about these <laughs> Love issues to. um but one thing you touched on early on was health span. It's not really about how many years you live. It's how many uh, years you uh, are living as a healthy, active person. And that, of course, ties into 
uh, your ability and desire to want to keep working. And that kind of segues us into the kind of science fiction-y topics that people often equate with someone uh, who is in the business of predicting the future. And yet, this is a topic I've been talking about for a while, and I sometimes feel that people think that I'm a bit nuts to talk about it. And yet, if they go and look at you know, the actual source material, this stuff is happening. What I'm talking about is medical uh, age reversal, not, not just living longer or not just living healthier, but actually being able to reverse uh, the age of our cells. <laughs> that, that sounds crazy. And yet, um, David Sinclair's team earlier this year published uh, their report on 13 years of work on cellular age reversal. And the, at least, you know, as far as we can read at this point, it seems like it will be possible. They have to do human trials next, but that's crazy. And yet that's also reality. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it is crazy. Uh, I mean, I've been following this story for, I guess, you know, 20 years now, since my early 20s, when I started to read about a British scientist called Aubrey de Grey, mm. who's eccentric, well, certainly eccentric, somewhat eccentric looking um, British scientist whose big obsession became um, human human lifespan and longevity and essentially the war against death and you know 20 years ago he was saying the first person to live to a th absolutely incredible things things that people had never thought of or heard of at that time well i certainly hadn't you know the first person to live to uh, 1000 years old is already alive and we can cure aging we should think of aging as a disease that we can cure like others um and there are various there are various perspectives on and Aubrey de Grey is still going and I think he has a laboratory around him now you know I think he inherited sort of 30 million pounds from his mother or something and he's pumped it all into this 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 I want to say insane like this very determined quest to cure death essentially and he's there are perspectives on that because 20 years on from the state kind of statements he was making do we have anything available to us have we made a quantum leap forward, you know, no. Um, but this kind of advance tends to come extremely slowly um, and then all at once, a bit like the AI progress. I mean, if you look across the last few decades, you know, we've we've been talking about AI for decades. Now it suddenly feels pretty tangible. Um, I think we might see the same kind of thing here. And the Sinclair work that you talk about this informational theory of aging, this idea that um, aging is essentially a process of informational disintegration in the in the epigenome, in the part of our genome that controls the activation or silencing of genes. Um, I think that work might be certainly is a very strong contender for one of the ways this could happen quite suddenly after decades of you know pretty slow. Uh, because it does seem very promising. Um, and then at the same time, you have this huge Harvard study of metformin, um, you know, the diabetes medicine that people believe can uh, significantly slow cellular aging, essentially. And then you have huge, you know, hugely funded laboratories like Calico, 
which is an offshoot of Alphabet, of Google. Essentially, you have Altos Labs, which is Jeff Bezos funded. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is happening now. And some of the research is extremely promising. It doesn't seem at all outlandish now to imagine that, <clears throat> excuse me, in 10, 20, you know, 30 years time would seem pretty conservative. There will be therapeutics out there whose primary or sole purpose is essentially to slow the aging process and that they might be pretty good at it. Um, and people find it very hard to get their head around that. And part of what they find hard to get their head around is exactly as you said, you know, we're not we're not talking about the extension of extreme old age. We're not talking about um, be, you know, getting people to a place where they can be extremely elderly and infirm but live to 300. We're talking about essentially what we talked about before, the elongation of middle age. Uh, and the dream is to elongate that essentially indefinitely, or, cer or perhaps certainly for hundreds of years. Um, people find it hard to get their head around that. You know, the, what we're questing after is that you will be, you'll live to 500 and you'll be well um, and and vibrant and agile and imaginative and all the things you want to be for 480 of those. I, I even put this question to my to the New World Same Humans community. I run a little Slack community around the newsletter and said to said to them, you know, how if you if if there was a possibility to live to 500, would you want to, yes or no? And I was one of the only people that said yes. <laughs> I was seen as like an extreme outlier. Um and many of them said, you know, I don't want to be old for that long. You know, I just feel I'd be like tired and tired of life. And I was like, would you be if you were if you still felt the way if you were just as well as you are now? Would you be? Um, that is perhaps what is coming. And then you get into, you know, the the territory of trying to think meaningfully about the implications of that. Um, and it's extremely mind bending to try to to imagine those. Yeah, absolutely. The the thought that my children may never grow old at all is, again, a crazy sounding thought. But uh, it, it is interesting. And, and we have to point out here that everything we've talked about before now with the longevity economy is really just a function of demographics. It's happening um, this is more of the the wild card uh, aspect of it, where uh, things radically change. And I like what you said about how things take longer than we always think they will. Like, for example, Sinclair's news is monumental. And then perhaps some people think, well, it's five years, 10 years down the road, but probably more like 20, which is another irony with the baby boomer generation, because I think all those companies you mentioned and the billions of dollars that's being uh, poured into uh, longevity research may miss all the baby boomer money that you would think it's aimed at. Um, and it's actually you and I who will be the beneficiaries of this. I don't know how it's going to play out. It would be wonderful um, and it's also hopefully it has to be mass available, which I think this kind of market would require. And some people think, well, only the rich will be able to afford it. That's possible. Um, but from what I'm seeing, that's not how it would play out. I don't know if you have any insight on that or not. Um, I, I think you're right. It is possible that we are the primary that that if there are sort of beneficiaries in, you know, alive right now, that that 
that people our age and younger will be the beneficiaries because I think it's clear it's going to be much easier to sort of prevent additional aging than it is to undo aging. Undoing cellular processes that have been done is is extremely difficult and undoing that kind of damage. But if you can catch people before the, the damaging onslaught of late middle age and old age, that can be great. Um, yeah, I think. What was the second half of the question? Oh, uh, whether or not this is going to be affordable or only the uh, oh, yeah, that's oligarchy right. will be the ones living forever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, look, I think at first it's likely that it will be a certainly, certainly extremely affluent people and above who who have access to this but given the size of the market which is essentially everyone you know no no one wants to die no one wants to get really old and infirm and then die um there's going to be insane innovation around bringing the price of this to a point where quote unquote ordinary people you know ordinary people in the global north can um can afford it but I still think for, you know, certainly in its in its early incarnation, and when I say early incarnation, I might mean, you know, maybe the first 100 years, it feels as though this would be a big driver of further economic inequality, because you are going to have some people who can access it and some people who can't. And the people, you know, if you can, if you can buy medicine that keeps you well for 300 years and you can continue to accrue value make money basically and build capital around yourself all that time um that just makes even more acute the phenomena around um middle-aged and older people hoarding resource um that i talked about before you know and then they will start to pass those resources on to i mean imagine if you're the if you're sort of the the grandson of a person who lived to 300 who is himself the son of someone who lived to 300 um, and the kind of capital accrual that can take place across those generations versus if you're an ordinary person whose grandfather sort of lived to 60 and your dad lived to 75. It just feels that this will be a driver of economic inequality. Um, that's one of the implications, perhaps. But on the flip side, you're going to have the the, the possibility for incredible new modes of human consciousness and creative outputs and perspectives on life you know what what does it feel like to be a human being that's 200 years old and and what can those human beings realize and see about the true nature of the world and about our own lives and um our own natures that we simply can't see because it takes it takes that long to be able to get there um those are fascinating in the end sort of almost philosophical questions you know what knowledge and insight and what ways of seeing are we missing simply because somewhat sort of arbitrarily determined by sort of biological variants that are nothing to do with human consciousness and ways of seeing we we just stop around 100 if we're lucky you know what i mean so what are we missing um because of that we might get to find out. I mean, that is going to be an absolutely fascinating. It's, it's almost like aliens have landed on Earth. You know, if we can get to if we can get to a place where people can live to five hundred, that's just that's just a crazy new uh, 
perspective on what it means to be a human being. And then at the very sort of um, outside edges of this, I think part of a part of what it does if you get to that place, and I know that feels pretty science fiction, but this is what some people are talking about, is it 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 stresses in a new way just the very idea of personhood. You know, can you retain the idea of a coherent single person from birth to death, you know, across life, if you're talking about a person who's lived to the age of 500? I mean, just do a little thought experiment, you know, that someone who's age 480, it's discovered that when they were 20, they robbed a bank. Do you hold that person responsible for some for, for something that happened all that time ago? It starts to, you know, I mean, we face those questions today when in very old age, it's discovered that, that someone did something when they were very young. And people are like, well, it was 60 years ago. You know, are we really going to? That is made intensely more acute if we just stretch lifespan. And at some point we stretch it so much that our model of personhood, which is, yes, that's the same person, they can still be held accountable. Um, if we stretch lifespan to 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 that extent, that model starts to break down. And okay, I'm I'm, I'm using the example of crimes and sort of criminal accountability to 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 demonstrate that, but there are all kinds of implications of that breakdown if we get there. But of course, that is a long way off at the moment. Yeah, speaking of science fiction, um, science cyberpunk author Bruce Sterling in the 80s wrote a book called Holy Fire, and I read it way back then. And it was about all these philosophical questions of extreme longevity, income inequality on one side, and then the, the title refers to the creative creativity and expression and what it means to be a human being who lives that long. It's uh, fascinating stuff, uh, but it's no longer apparently science fiction. So in, <laughs> in the yeah. meantime, you know, the healthy aging movement within society, I mean, it's not evenly distributed to quote uh, William Gibson, another cyberpunk author, but um you know, some people are living shorter because they're not taking care of themselves in the obesity crisis, while others are living exceptionally into their 70s and 80s. And, and this is just something that we're going to have to watch how it plays out. But there's an old saying, live long enough to live forever may not be uh, a hollow statement anymore. Um, David, any parting thoughts? I, I really appreciate you coming on. This is just fascinating stuff. We could keep going forever, but I want to respect your time. Uh, parting thoughts? I, you know, my overriding thought is that the the journey you're setting out on is just a fascinating one because you're stepping early into a deep underlying structural shift that is going to reshape the world around us in the global north in all kinds of incredible ways. And to be the person who's been documenting that from early in the story is just an incredibly exciting place. So I, I can't wait to see where your newsletter goes, where you go with this journey, with the, to hear from the other guests you get on. I think you're, you're, you're onto something and it's, it's going to be an incredible journey watching you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. David, uh, where can people find and subscribe to New World Same Humans? 
Yes, thank you. Handily, they can go to newworldsamehumans.com to read a little bit more about the newsletter and they can sign up for it there. All right. Excellent. Please do go subscribe. It is a must read. And uh, we will have more coming for you on the Longevity Games podcast with uh, great guests. Maybe not as great as David, but uh, we'll do our best. Thanks so much, Brian. Brian.